0: All right, we are back. Unfortunately, we have a bit of bad news about the climate, and most of the news about the climate seems to be bad. But a study conducted at Stanford, at least in a doctoral dissertation at Stanford by Carolyn Snyder, who's now a climate policy official at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, a continuous 2 million year temperature record has been created, which is much longer than the previous 22,000 year old record. Snyder's temperature reconstructions were published last Monday in the journal Nature. It doesn't estimate temperatures for any given year but averages 5,000 year time periods going back a couple of million years. This new study paints a picture of an earth that is warmer than it has been in the last 120,000 years and apparently is locked into eventually hitting its hottest mark in more than two million years. Now, they reconstructed temperatures based on ratios of, of magnesium and calcium in species uh, of organisms whose, gets rem- whose remains get deposited on the seafloor, which is how you can you know, know how far back the seafloor goes, and then using those ratios, estimate whether it was warm or cold. There's a bit of imprecision in this. Seth Bornstein and the AP described them as rough estimates with large margins of error Snyder was quoted as saying these are rough estimates with large margins of error, but did note that temperature changes correlated well to carbon dioxide levels. Taking taking the link to carbon dioxide levels into account and some other factors and some past trends, Snyder calculated how much warming can be expected in the future. She said that if climate factors are the same as in the past, and that's a big if, Earth is already committed to another 7 degrees or so of warming over the next few thousand years. And no, despite reading the piece a couple of times, I can't tell whether they mean Fahrenheit or Celsius. I hope it's Fahrenheit. 7 degrees of Celsius and our goose is cooked. I think our goose is probably cooked anyway. And yes, this does point out that there is a great variation in Earth's climate over the eons, in spite of the fact that, you know, in the past people were not spewing CO2 into the atmosphere. But there are a lot of factors that go into changes in temperature. And uh, unfortunately for us, highly increased levels of CO2, and is definitely not doing good things for us at the present time. And in other news, we think worthy of commentary, we have this from Ayshan Tharur, writing in the Washington Post. just quote from it. The history of slavery in the United States justifies reparations for African Americans argues a recent report by a UN affiliated group based in Geneva. This conclusion was part of a study by the UN working group of experts on people of African descent. This is a body that reports to the international organization's high commissioner on human rights. This group of experts which includes leading human rights lawyers from around the world Presented its findings to the UN Human Rights Council last Monday, pointing to the continuing link between present injustices and the dark chapters of American history. Well, now I would note that it's undeniable that, you know, if someone's great, great, great grandfather was captured by a neighboring tribe in the Ivory Coast and sold to slave traders who then ship this person across the Atlantic to work in the sugarcane fields or cotton fields of the New World, that is a grievous injustice. But I would ask, how is that injustice made right by cash payments to the great-great-great-grandson? I don't see it. Maybe you do. I would note, as an aside, because I had this conversation with a friend a couple of days ago, that if you're a great believer in the literal interpretation of the Bible, or a great believer in the sentiments expressed in the Bible, it should be noted that slavery is clearly okay. At no point in the Bible is the institution itself questioned. In fact, when Jesus is queried about how a slave should behave, his reaction is not, slavery, are you kidding me? It's got to be outlawed. No, Jesus in fact offers some advice about how a slave, you know, should be a good slave. You know, like if you're, you know, like giving you advice of, how hey, if you want to be a plumber, how to be a good plumber. And folks, if you don't believe me on that one, look it up. All right, we're talking about how economists perhaps ought to be jailed just a moment ago. And uh, in keeping with that, let me cite an article, which is an analysis of bioenergy from the September 24th issue of New Scientist. Let me just quote from the piece by Michael LePage. The article is headlined, The Great Carbon Scam. The sub-headline is that the largest source of clean, quote-unquote, energy isn't reducing carbon emissions by as much as officials claim. To quote from the piece, On the face of it, Europe is a leader in tackling climate change, on course to get 20% of its energy from renewable sources by 2020. But don't cheer just yet. Why? The biggest source of renewable energy in the European Union isn't one of the ones everyone talks about, wind, solar, or hydro. No. The EU now gets more than 60% of its renewable energy from biomass, some from crops grown to make liquid biofuels but mostly from wood waste and felled trees. That means that about a tenth of the energy that Europeans use for heating, transport and electricity will soon come from forests and farms. Many fear that this push for biomass will be disastrous for wildlife and drive up food prices. But What's most shocking is that this push is based on flawed assumptions. The carbon balance sheets of developed countries hide a scam, one whose long-term effects could be far more damaging than the subprime mortgage scandal that led to the global recession of 2008. Said Mr. LePage, overall, bioenergy may be reducing emissions compared with fossil fuels, but not by nearly as much as is claimed. That's because UN and EU rules mean countries don't have to count the significant carbon dioxide produced by burning the biomass. This accounting trick means biomass is sometimes being favored over other renewables that could cut emissions more. Bioenergy is, after all, a very inefficient form of solar energy. It captures at best 0.3% of the sun's available energy, whereas solar panels capture more than 10%. Worse, in some cases, switching to biomass actually produces higher emissions than fossil fuels. In other words, EU taxpayers are funding projects that are speeding up global warming. It goes on. It's not just a European issue. In the U.S., too, bioenergy is the single largest source of renewable energy. Forestry groups growing rich from selling wood to Europe want U.S. lawmakers to introduce the same flawed accounting system. The big worry is that countries like Indonesia, Brazil, and the Democratic Republic of Congo will follow suit and start cutting down their trees to generate energy too. Said Thomas Searchinger of Princeton University, it's a kind of madness. Why is this happening? When researchers first began totting up global carbon emissions, they decided to count those from cutting trees when they were felled. To avoid double counting, they ignored CO2 from burning. During U.N. climate talks, the same approach was adopted. Biomass emissions are regarded as carbon neutral, so they don't count toward a country's total. Said Peter Smith at the University of Edinburgh in the U.K., just assuming that biomass is carbon neutral is daft. Said Thomas Searchinger, it's a basic accounting error. You could cut down the Amazon, turn it into a parking lot, ship the trees to Europe to replace coal, and Europe would claim a reduction in in emissions. Anyway, worthwhile article to read. You might want to read it in its entirety on your own, dear listener. I suggest you do so. Later in the article, it poses the question of what proportion of bioenergy increases emissions rather than reducing them, because you do get some benefits. Apparently, the response was, no one knows. The article notes that little is being done about it. A few years ago, when the UK government's own scientists said that many forms of forest biomass increase emissions, the findings were ignored. Thomas Serchinger said they've ignored it because they've already committed and because they don't know what else to do. In fact, I can't resist quoting the close of the article. It said, If companies use flawed accounting methods to calculate financial results, we would call it fraud. For countries to claim emissions reductions on the basis of flawed accounting can surely be described as fraud too. In the long run, it's going to cause a lot more harm than the banks did. Speaking of what the banks did... In the great crisis back in 2008, Wells Fargo seemed to have gotten a pass on on, uh, people who criticized the bad behavior of the big banks. They seem to have, my understanding is anyway, uh, behaved less badly than others. I could be mistaken about that, but that's my understanding. But uh, it's worthy of note that in this latest fake accounts scandal, the CEO of Wells Fargo, John Stumpf, is retiring, and um, some say he might make as much as $100 million when he leaves. This just doesn't seem right, does it? You're the boss during uh, a bunch of shenanigans going on in the bank, uh, fake accounts being created, and yet you still get to walk away with $100 million. Well, it's not clear that he will, but we'll, I think, keep an eye on that one. Mr. McMillan says he really hopes the guy doesn't have to settle for a paltry, say, $50 million. a couple of deaths this past week of note. Shimon Perez of Israel and Arnold Palmer of Golf. Regarding Mr. Palmer, it's, it's quite curious that he is just considered this towering figure in golf, uh, enormously popular over the decades. Never as good a golfer as, say, a Jack Nicholas, but a guy who was influential beyond belief in that world of golf, which is a world I frankly don't know that much about. But I do know this. He popularized the mixing of lemonade and iced tea and uh, apparently marketed it successfully. And it's, it's quite popular now uh, everywhere we look. Can Tiger Woods make a similar claim? We think not. Now, the headlines about Shimon Peres say that he pushed the country towards peace, and I guess he did. He clearly didn't push hard enough. He did win a Nobel Prize for his efforts in that regard, but we do have to point out, so did Henry Kissinger. Mr. Peres was a protege of Israel's founding father, David Ben-Gurion. He led the defense ministry in his twenties and spearheaded the development of Israel's nuclear program, which, which probably didn't do that much for peace in the Middle East, if you think about it. Well, it made sure nobody invaded Israel. I think that's for sure. The last time somebody tried was in 1973, and the Israelis put a bomber in the air with a nuke on board, ready to take out Cairo if things went poorly. I feel pretty sure that once word of that got around, um, no one else contemplated doing it. But we should give credit where credit is due. Shimon Peres was celebrated by doves and vilified by hawks for advocating far-reaching Israeli compromises for peace even before he negotiated the first interim accord with the Palestinians back in 1993. That did set into motion a partition plan that gave them limited self-rule. Anyway, I'm really not qualified to talk about Shimon Peres, so I would just refer you to any of the obituaries. There's a lot of ink being spilled over him. He cut quite a figure. And I would probably just note in closing about him that uh, he didn't succeed very well in Israeli politics, possibly because of his dovish position on some of the issues. In the year 2000, Perez uh, received one of many resounding political slaps when he lost an election in the parliament when the largely ceremonial post of president. He lost to Likud party backbencher Moshe Katsav, who was later convicted and imprisoned for rape. Ouch. And we've talked in this program in the past about how we think during election year um, U.S. politicians are going to go very easy on Israel in spite of some of its dubious behavior. The week summarized some of the latest developments in the aid package to Israel as follows, or at least they're quoting from Abraham Ben Zvi, who wrote in Israel Hayom, that the record military aid package handed to the country last week by the U.S. was a landmark in the partnership between the two countries. The agreement is to provide $38 billion to Israel over 10 years, which is up from $31 billion in the previous decade and is the largest military aid deal the U.S. has ever offered to any ally. This didn't stop a lot of commentators in Israel from complaining that this wasn't nearly enough. Here's the part I found interesting. Uri Prilichowski writing in the Jerusalem Post said, we need to stop moaning, referring to the people complaining about the aid not being enough, And thank Obama for being a staunch friend of Israel. For all his differences with Benjamin Netanyahu, he is, quote, the only president to have a 100% voting record on Israel in the United Nations, unquote, instructing his ambassadors to vote against every resolution condemning Israel. On the note, it was his pressure that brought the UN's first session on anti-Semitism, and it was he who prevented the Palestinians from unilaterally declaring an independent state. Obama did that? We did not know that. Of course, we're assuming the commentator is correct about that, and he, of course, may well be. All right, and in other international news, we would note that um, things are not going so well down in Venezuela. The country is just facing economic disaster, partly in the wake of Hugo Chavez. No matter what's to blame, the country has suffered for three years worth of recession and high inflation and food shortages and heavily armed criminal gangs are apparently thriving. One such gang robbed a top Venezuelan soccer team of almost everything, including their cell phones, shirts, cleats, and soccer balls, as they were taking a bus ride home after a match. According to the story, six men boarded Trujano's FC's bus at 2.30 a.m. and ordered it off the road, held the team hostage for two hours, and threatened to detonate a grenade unless members handed over all of their valuables. Highway robbery is now common in Venezuela. And poor Mexico. The Mexican peso dropped to an all-time low last week versus the dollar, just under 20 pesos of the dollar, because of fears of a Donald Trump presidency. That's viewed as um, a way to hurt the economic relations between the U.S. and Mexico, Duh. The decline of the peso began after poll numbers released last week showed Trump leading Clinton in battleground states like Florida and Ohio. In addition to his threat to build a wall along the southern U.S. border, Trump has pledged to pull America out of NAFTA and slap tariffs on Mexican goods. Mexico sends 80% of its exports to the U.S. France has become the first country to pass legislation that will ban disposable plastic plates, cups, and cutlery. The measure will go into effect in 2020, by which time all single-use tableware will have to be made of compostable materials. To which we say, isn't that about time everywhere? And authorities in the South African nation of Botswana have deported an anti-gay United States pastor. Apparently this Arizona pastor is Stephen Anderson of the Faithful World Baptist Church, arrived in Botswana last week after South Africa refused him a visa. The Botswanans are saying that his sermons amount to hate speech. This came in the wake of his saying on a local radio show that gays and lesbians should be, quote, stoned to death, unquote. We have to admit that it does sound like it's straying a bit into hate speech. Botswanan President Ian Kama said he ordered police to go directly to the radio station and arrest and deport Anderson saying, we don't want hate speech in this country. Let him do it in his own country. Homosexual acts are illegal in Botswana. Anderson drew notoriety in the U.S. last summer when he celebrated the mass shooting at an Orlando gay nightclub saying, quote, there's 50 less pedophiles in the world, unquote. This is, we would remind you, a man of God. All right, I'm getting tired, so I need to take a short break here. I am Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. and We've got about 10 more minutes of airtime, but uh, I need a glass of water. Be back in a second.